1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Come on, Peter. Yes, you're suing. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. And she wasn't altogether there. At the end. stress on my family. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and this time out I have straight from uh, Neozaz, Mr. David Fox. How you doing, Dave? I am delighted to be here talking about one of my favorite movies. 
I'm glad to have you here. And uh, <laughs> for what it's worth, uh, I don't know, Dave, how long have we been talking about trying to find a time where we could do this? About a year, maybe? It's been a while. I'm awful with uh, getting back to people and stuff, so it's totally <laughs> my fault. Um, uh, and I'm I'm good at pestering people until they finally come around, so it's, no, the I, combination worked. <laughs> I didn't see it as pestering, and Matt, um, you and Matt from NeoZaz are, are friends, and uh, Matt has wholeheartedly recommended that I, I do this show because he uh, he thinks you're delightful, Paul. So. Oh, that's that's good to hear. I, I I don't know that I've ever been described as delightful before. <laughs> delightful? You, no, nobody's ever been like you are a delightful guy. No, <laughs> never, never. But you know, you, the, the only the, thing he said that you and I will may come to uh, words over is a Mets versus Phillies argument. <laughs> that could happen. Uh, although with with baseball season being. Uh, you know, in hiatus, uh, I don't know that we're going to have much to argue about right now. That's true. Uh, what I'll say, just, I don't want to go too far afield on that, but what I'll say is your team hired the manager I wanted my team to hire. <laughs> I bet a lot of teams could say that. <laughs> well, and, and my impression was he wanted to come to the Mets, and the Mets wouldn't give him, you know, they, they, they see him as an old school, I want control of the team guy. Mm-hmm. Which is why I wanted him to <laughs> to hire him, but I think that's why they didn't, is because you know they they these days I think the teams look for managers that they can just say okay this is what we want you to do and this is the way we want you to manage the team. I yeah. think you're exactly right, and that's why we're excited because Philadelphia, New York, Boston, all the Northeast towns are generally very passionate, hard-nosed sports fans, and we want guys like that. So uh, we just got rid of a yoga-inducing, hippie, touchy-feely kind of guy, and he can go to San Francisco and be where he is, and we're just happy with that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I I hear you. And the other area where I'll just, before we go off of the baseball thing, is back when the uh, Yankees played the Phillies in the World Series, Mm -hmm. uh, people said to me, well, you're going to root for the Yankees, right? No, no, I'm rooting for the Phillies. <laughs> Everybody Cause... knows that Met fans don't like the Yankees and vice versa. You can't just trade because it's the same New York team. That's that's uh, that's treason. Well, I think the people who do that aren't true. Not that they're not fans; they're baseball fans. But I don't think they're true fans of the specific team. When when you say, "Well, I'm a Yankee fan, but I root for the Mets when they're not playing the Yankees," I, you know, I don't. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's like a, it's like a White Sox fan saying if the Cubs are in the World Series, well, I'll just root for the Cubs. Hell no, they would never do that. Yeah, totally agree. But maybe one day we'll we'll get together and we'll talk some more baseball because I think we could probably go on for a while. Uh, but you know, I guess we went back and forth a little bit trying to figure out which movie to do, and I gave Dave the choice, and he suggested Hereditary. Which, quite frankly, I never heard of before before Dave's message to me. Uh, so I looked it up, and it was available on Amazon Prime. So I watched it, and boy, my my mind is blown over this movie. Good. I was that was gonna be <laughs> that was gonna be one of my first questions. Did it blow your mind? I swear to God, I was gonna ask you if it blew your mind. And if you were like, eh, it was just there, I was gonna be like, kind of surprised because anybody that I suggest this to, they are either mind blown or very angry with me because I didn't warn them. 
So I didn't do that to you. I apologize. I didn't warn you. I was just like, how about hereditary? And then let you soak it in. It is a very uncomfortable movie to watch. That's a good word for it. There's, there's, there's no point where you just sit back and you're like, okay, I'm just going to let this flow. Uh, it starts off, and we before we started to record, we were talking about it. We're going to try and keep kind of spoiler-free for the beginning portion of the show. And the, the plot points that we mention, I will at least make an effort to make them things that aren't going to spoil the experience for you. Uh, if you're if you're listening to this, so at some point we're going to say, okay, now we're going to talk spoilers. But just as a general statement, the movie opens with the funeral of the main character's mother. So it's the grandmother of two children, the mother of the wife, and then there's the husband. Uh, so a lot of what this story starts out with. Uh, and and where you feel this is going to go is a lot of it is dealing with that family loss. Right. And the grief that comes and the guilt that comes and any bad feelings that you may have had towards that person that now you feel guilty for having those. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was really, really well portrayed in this. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of that credit goes to Tony Collette, whom... I like people ask me sometimes who, who your favorite actress is. And she's like one of those actresses that every time I see her, I try to make a mental note of my, to myself saying, remember, Tony Collette is your favorite actress. And then I forget about her because she, she just has this way of like disappearing until you see her again and you remember how compelling she is in every single thing she does. Well, I don't think I've seen her in a lot. The biggest thing that came out to me, and, and it is to some extent also an uncomfortable watch, is uh, The Sixth Sense. Right. Uh, but there's not a lot else that she's been in that I've seen. But, boy, she gave a performance here. I'll give her that. Yeah, like how, how this woman doesn't have like seven Oscars to me right now is mind-blowing as well. Because that stuff that you're talking about with loss and everybody, everybody's had people – pass away in their lives the older you get the more things and people you lose and all of that baggage that goes along with it is on full display here at the beginning because uh it's not your garden variety funeral it's right off the bat letting you know that this is not like anything you've seen before yeah i would agree and and you know you her speech at the funeral, her, her eulogy, uh, she lets it be known that her mother was not, you know, a very warm and cuddly motherly person. But she also does, she doesn't get up there and, and like say she's a horrible person either. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of things as far as like the resentment that she may feel or the, uh, you know, the loss and everything where I believe it's not actually spelled out and and spoken in words and i think a lot of it comes through in her performance yeah yeah she and, and you've already used the word uncomfortable as uncomfortable as we are as viewers she's as com as uncomfortable standing up there talking about her mother and one of the things that i, I don't think this is 
it's it's a significant point, but I don't think it's a problem to give it away. <laughs> and Dave, if I go over the line at any point that I do say something that would give too much away, please point it out to me because uh, you know I I don't want to go too far. But she mentions uh, in her eulogy that there's a lot of faces she didn't recognize at the funeral. Right. And that that does have some significance later, and I don't want to talk about what that significance is just yet. Uh, but we're getting right into like okay. There's things going on that we're not really up to speed on, and neither is is this character. Right. You, I just, I actually physically got a chill when you said that there are people that she doesn't recognize anyone at the at the service, and there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. That's, just, that's, what, that's what this movie does to me. This mu- this movie elicits physical reactions even when you're not watching it. Well, now, let me ask you. Did you see this in a movie theater? No. How did I you first become aware of it? It became – it had this um, sort of cult following. And, and I don't know how you are and because we, you know, I don't know. I, I looked at the list of movies that you've done on your show, and there was some horror. Um, and I feel like at this age we're, – we're both about the same age – I feel like there's nothing that's going to scare me anymore. Like people jumping out of of the corner, you know, whatever. I got it. I've seen horror movies. I'm I'm fine. And I kept seeing these reviews about how this is the scariest movie of the past two decades. I was like, come on, how how scary can it be? It's it's Tony Collette and and uh, Gabriel Byrne and some weird looking girl. You know, whatever. I'm sure it's fine. So I fell into this hype machine that I guess worked at least a little bit. Not enough because, like you said, a lot of people don't know this movie, but they should. Um, but I fell in with that um, word of mouth cult following that this is the movie that will shake you to your core. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. And then I was like, oh, shit, it did. <laughs> But one of the things about it uh, that makes it an effective horror movie to me, uh, jump scares don't make an effective horror movie for me. Jump scares are just for the moment, you know, and and I really don't like that. I don't like that feeling of, of, you know, something jumping out of the screen and in kind of a, you know, a bullshit moment. Agreed, Uh, because it's cheap. I think they're cheap, exactly. Anybody can do it. it. If it's in a Jason movie... And it might startle startle you for a second, but it's not truly frightening. They just they gave you a, a a jolt. Yeah, it's a cheap scare. This only has one of those, and it's the best one ever. And we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but what this one does, and it's the best horror. What what the best horror movies do, is it gives you some concepts concepts and some thoughts. That after the movie is done, your mind is still racing with them a little bit. And that's where, to me, the true frightening aspect of the movie comes. That's where movies are that, that, you know, I don't necessarily, I enjoy a good horror movie, but I kind of, I kind of get a little uncomfortable when it's two, three days later and I'm thinking about something and it's like, oh man. I don't know if I'm going to sleep good tonight. Right? Uh, that, the, that's what this movie does. That's the perfect way to put it. It, sca- it scares you when you watch it, but it scares you more three days later. The movie that always, uh, you know, I always point back to that scared me the most in my lifetime was The Exorcist. 
Right. I had seen The Exorcist when I was in high school, and it had been revived in a movie theater. So I got to see it on the big screen, even though I was too young to see it when it was out the first time. That's cool. Uh, and at the time, I think I've told this story when we reviewed The Exorcist on the show, but I'm going to tell it again. At the time, uh, we had had a small fire in my home, and my bedroom was not habit habitable. If I'm saying that word right. Uh, so for temporarily until the contractors redid my room. And uh, just to, as a side note, I had nothing to do with starting this fire. Uh, <laughs> but until my room was done, I was sleeping on the couch down in the living room. So I got home from the movie theater. I was probably 16, 17 years old. I got home from the movie theater. My parents had already gone to sleep. And I was terrified. <laughs> and I laid down on the couch and I left the light on. And thank God my mom was an early riser because at about five thirty, six o'clock, she woke up. And when I heard her come down the stairs and go into the kitchen, I could close my eyes and go to sleep. <laughs> when you knew you had company. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Uh, that's what and, good movies do. That's what good yes. filmmaking does. And that's what both of these movies have done. And movies like, like The Exorcist, The Omen. Right. Uh, and this movie now, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put this, bring this into, into that almost into that level maybe i don't i don't know we'll we'll rate the movie at the end but uh but it's it has that it had that kind of chilling effect on me now uh i have been able to sleep but now i'm a middle-aged man where i used to, was a teenager the first time i think if i saw this when i was 16 years old the same same exact impact would happen yeah well that's good company and and like i said i didn't really warn you i just kind of put it out there and then i did feel a day or two later i was like maybe i should have said something to him <laughs> but eh. no, and and as as we talked about this is a movie that some of the reviews have indicated the less you know about it coming in the better off you are right so the fact that you didn't want me and i really had no idea what what it was but uh i sat down with my fiance to see if this was a movie we'd watch together because i had no idea what it was I found it on Amazon Prime, and I said, oh, let's watch the trailer, and we'll see. We were about maybe 30 seconds of this trailer. She was like, you're watching this one alone. I'm not watching this with you. So, so I had a clue at that point as to what we were dealing with. Uh, I love but, it. That, that's a review right there. That should be like on the title screen. I couldn't even sit through the trailer. <laughs> yeah. uh, it reminded me not so much – it didn't remind me of it that it's similar movies, but – the modern horror genre now, uh, I think there's a little bit more of an effort to be a little bit more intelligent with movies like Get Out. Right. Uh, and I think this one kind of falls into place with that. It's not, again, it's not going to have cheap jump scares. It's not just, okay, there's a murderer on the loose. There's a lot more going on. And I think that beyond the horror aspect of it, there's also... All of those things we talked about with the family relationship and the guilt and the loss of a loved one uh, and, you know, how that's going to affect your lives and how that's going to affect the relationship of your family. So I think there's there's a lot there uh, yeah. beyond just the horror concepts. Yeah, I agree. There's this is a psychological horror movie, but it's also a family drama under insane circumstances. But it's not just it's not just horror for horror's sake. There's there's way more to it than that. 
Yeah, it's much more intelligent than that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention before I forget was as I was watching this, because we, we talked a little bit about Toni Collette. Through this whole movie, she reminded me so much of Frances McDormand. Okay. Who was a do... two-time Oscar winner. I mean, right, they... not, she's in good company there. <laughs> they do favor each other, and they're both great. So, yeah, I see that. It's, I did, I have to say, I thought that Gabriel Byrne, who my familiarity with Gabriel Byrne is mostly from Miller's Crossing and The Usual Suspects. Right. Uh, I thought he was a little miscast. Because he was too old for her? He's, he, he definitely seemed too old for her. I'd say he's probably about 15 years older than her. Yeah. Uh, and he, until, until his last scenes in the movie... Uh, seemed to be almost sleepwalking through it. Now, I think he, that may have been a conscious choice by him, uh, that you know he was thrown off by this loss and by how his family was imp- impacted by it and what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just didn't get a lot from him in it. And he I, seemed too old. Yeah, he, he is a bit older. I, 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 I guess I like his role in this, that he is... These kids, what can I say without spoiling anything? These kids have not had a typical upbringing. And their mother at times has been not only absentee, uh, uh, devoid of love and motherly instincts, but also dangerous. That uh, he has to become the best dad ever. And I like the scenes between him and Peter, the son, which is Alex Wolf. Um, there are times the, the the most awful things that can happen to a family happen in this movie, and he is still his dad. And and when he needs it, he puts his hand on his shoulder and he's and he tells him that he loves him. Like I like his supportiveness. I guess you're right. He doesn't do a whole lot more than that. And and. I'm going to credit a lot of that to the writing as opposed to the performance. I'm not getting a lot, uh, you know, from looking at his facial expressions again until the end. At the end, I think I see a lot. But early on, I'm not getting a lot from him. I don't feel like he's doing a lot. Now, maybe it's again, maybe it's a choice. He's trying to show that he's being stoic for her. Right. Uh, You know, something along those lines. You know, he's taking care of all all the uh, the issues that arise or whatever. But. Again, I, I just felt like we could have gotten into a little bit more from him. Okay. Uh, the son, Peter, I, I thought he was terrific in it. Alex Wolf. Yeah, I'm not so familiar great. with him otherwise. Do you have any familiarity with him? He He's this guy. He's got a brother, and his brother is in a lot of things, They and they look exactly the same. His brother is in uh, – uh, what, what's the thing where they, it's a teenager that's dying of cancer? The Fault in Our Stars. Okay, I've uh, heard of that. I remember my daughter went to see it, but yeah, <laughs> that's as far as I went with it. There's the, it's him and his brother, and the brothers in some of the more popular things, and people think that this is the brother. It's not. They they look that much alike that you couldn't even tell them apart. Um, I, I to me, he's uh, great in this though. He's great. To me, he doesn't need to ever do anything else again. He's the kid from Hereditary. And that's enough for me to say I love that guy. I love the actor. I love what he did in this movie. And it's a hard role to play, and he killed it. Yes. Well, he. I mean, on 
again, to not go too spoilery just yet, uh, you know, he, he's supposed to be 16 years old and he's partying with his friends. He's doing things he shouldn't do. He's lying to his parents about it. But even with all of that, he never goes over the line where you start thinking he's a bad kid. He's no, kind yeah. Of, kind of a little bit of a stoner, but you know, other than that, he seems to care about his family. Uh, you know, he he seems to care about doing the right things, but he also, you know, has that rebellious streak. So, I feel like he's a very fleshed out character, and he's Agreed. portrayed well by Alex Wolf. Yeah, and he like he is not a bad kid. He's sweet. Um, he's and he and he doesn't have it easy. So. When you're watching this, well, like when you were watching it, was he, was he the one you're in his corner the most? Like of any of the characters, was he the one you're like, I hope this guy has a happy ending. Yeah, pretty pretty much, yes. Okay. Uh, and I and I think that that's partially due to his performance. I think you know you as you're watching it, you're thinking that you know Tony Collette, Annie. Uh, is the main character in the movie, and you're thinking it's going to be all about her overcoming whatever obstacles present themselves. Uh, but it's really more about Alex or Peter. Yes. Or, and I think that's, I like I said, I think a lot of that is just the complexity of the writing as well as the performance because it's not, it's not typical that you'd expect this character to step forth. No, and you're right. It's a slow burn that by the time you're dealing with the things that you deal with in the first act, Peter's certainly a part of it, but you don't realize till about halfway through how important Peter is. I'll just right. say that before we spoil. Yeah, and I, I think the, the only other thing I really wanted – well, I just want to mention two other main characters before we go into spoilers a little bit. Uh, but I guess one of, one of just the – I don't know if it's the strangest performance or it's the strangest character or whatever is Millie Shapiro as Charlie, the 13 year old daughter. Uh, you know, we, we definitely know right off the bat that she's a little off center. <laughs> uh, and well, it, I mean, right from the opening scene when they're getting ready to go to the grandmother's funeral, she's sleeping on the floor up in the attic. Yeah, so in the treehouse, yeah. On oh, the treehouse, rather, yeah. Uh, so you know there's something just a little different about her. And she's definitely got a very different look about her. She does. Her face is, is you know, I don't want to be insulting to this young girl, cause, but it's just a very, very, I don't know, I don't know the right way to say it. Uh, it's not typical. Yeah, I, I guess that's the, the kindest way to say it. Uh and we know she's got some kind of issues. They mentioned about uh, she didn't eat any peanuts, right? Because we don't have the EpiPen. Like right. that, that comes up at one point. So you know she's got some probably some physical issues as well. Uh, and you know I don't know. I'm not familiar with this actress, uh, and I'm not sure you know if she's going to go on to great things. But boy, she leaves an impression on you in this movie. She's great, and she's um, you should hear her sing. She's a um, she's a Broadway kid. Um, she was one of the, are you familiar with Matilda? I did see on her, uh, wiki page that it said she originated the role of Matilda. Yeah. She was the original Matilda on Broadway. She can sing her little ass off. She's, she's great. She's, she, and so she also, it also says she played Sally Brown in, uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And yeah, she's got the look for that. 
Yeah. She's she's fantastic. Um, but like you said, who knows with these kids? Like Haley Joel Osment was the toast of Hollywood when he was little and I don't know what the hell he's doing now. I, I, he pops up every once in a while on something. But it cer- it certainly didn't work out for him the way people thought it would. Yeah. I hope it does for her because she's super talented. And she's got a very different character. But the, the only other one, I guess, which may, is worth mentioning is Anne Dowd, who mm-hmm. portrays Joan, uh, who is a, you know, after Joan's mom dies, she joins a support group. Uh, and... She's a fellow member, and she befriends Anne. Yeah, and I don't know, are you a fan of hers at all? I'm not all that familiar with her, honestly, and I see she's been in a lot of things. Uh, just, just you know, on the the small blurb, it mentions Green Card, Lorenzo's Oil, Philadelphia, Garden State, The Manchurian Candidate. That's the 2004 remake. Marley and Me, Side Effects, and Saint Vincent. Those are the movies it mentions. I can't say I know for sure I've ever seen her in any of those, though. The thing that she does, and this is bordering on spoiler, she is, to me, the queen of playing this kind of character that she plays in Hereditary because she plays a very similar character in two really good series. One is The Leftovers, the HBO series The Leftovers, and the other that people are probably a little more familiar with is uh, Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. You know, my son and I watched the very first episode of Handmaid's Tale, and we said, oh, this is pretty interesting. We're going to watch this. Uh, that was about six months ago, and we haven't watched the second episode yet. <laughs> it wasn't that interesting. <laughs> it, we, we were, you know, we were definitely interested in it, and we kept saying we're going to watch more, but, you know, we haven't. So at some point, I guess we will. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really, again, I'm not familiar with her, but she's, she almost, she almost has, what's, what's the name, Gladys Kravitz from Bewitch? Bewitch <laughs> she almost has, has a feel like that, like the nosy next door neighbor who's sticking herself into your business. Yeah, she's very presumptuous, and you'll find out why. So I guess at this point, I'm going to just say, if you're listening in and you're intrigued by this discussion of the movie or the movie itself even if we're not all that intriguing uh <laughs> i'd say you know stop the podcast now it's available on amazon prime go watch the movie and if you're you know if you're a fan of horror movies i would say you will probably enjoy it uh and then come back and we'll you could listen to us talk about spoilers yeah and the least that you could say about this movie even if you don't enjoy it but i think you will uh is that there is not another movie really like this. It's completely original. You're at least going to see something you haven't seen before, which in today's Hollywood is kind of a rare thing. So now getting into spoilers a little bit, just to talk about movies that it reminded me of, cause you, <laughs> which is, I think, the perfect segue from you're going to see things you never saw before. I'm going to talk about <laughs> things I saw before. Yeah. Uh, but it reminded me a, a lot of things in it reminded me, first of all, of The Exorcist when she's on the Ouija board. Yeah. The scenes with there, uh, you know, again, I guess we're, we're talking spoilers here, so we don't really have to necessarily describe it. Uh, but if somebody's staying with this and they still haven't seen the movie, uh, but they're just interested in hearing what we have to say, this character, Joan, who befriends Anne, s- brings her into a situation where she says you can you know you you can have a seance and and speak to your uh your lost ones because 
between the beginning of the movie and that point, we also lose Charlie, the young girl, in a very horrifying way. What did you do, like, physically or vocally when that happened? Did you have – did you have – because this is one of the – most okay. memorable parts in the to- movie. Total, total spoilers here, because uh, mm. we said we're going to spoil this anyway. Uh, that, what's his name? Uh, Peter. 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 I, I was going to call him Alex. Peter Lee goes to a party, but says he's just going to like a school barbecue. So the parents make him take Charlie, the 13-year-old girl, with him. So he's at this party, and he's smoking it up on a bong. And Charlie eats some peanuts and starts to have, I guess, go into anaphylactic shock. Yes. So he rushes her out of the house into the car, and he's taking her to the hospital because he doesn't have an EpiPen with him. And as he's doing so, there's a deer in the road, a, a, I guess a dead deer. Uh, so he swerves the car. But while he's doing that, Charlie f- is feeling like she's going to throw up in the back seat, and she's having trouble breathing. So she opens the window and sticks her head out. And when he swerves, she gets decapitated. Damn, what did you do? <laughs> and, my God, I, I jumped out of my seat when that happens. I don't know I, if I made any, any audible sound, but I screamed. Yeah. But I think it may have been a silent scream. <laughs> right? Like, movies don't make you do this anymore. I, I mean, it takes your breath away. Like, it, it's a silent gasp and cover your face like oh, your gaping horrifying. maw. Holy crap! Yeah, that that whole that whole thing is so well shot, and yeah, she's allergic to nuts, and and as soon as you see him chomping up the nuts, you know there's gonna be something, something. Yeah, it was, it was Chekhov's nut. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. And they're chopping up the nuts, and they, they give her cake, and she walks into the room, and she says, I wrote down the lines because I remember the first time I saw this. Like, you have children. This is like every parent's nightmare anyway. Um, She says, it's hard to breathe. I think my throat's getting bigger. Like, as a parent, you hear those words, and you're just in a complete panic, as is Peter in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then – it is, as you mentioned, it's very well directed because, first of all, you feel the impending doom as she's opening the window and putting her head out of the window, and they, they show the car from that shot. Uh, and then when the car swerves, it's like, oh, my God, this, you know, it, it, they're, they're actually doing this. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you think about it, I mean, when you have small children, it's almost a great thing now compared to when we were young. Uh, that the, you know, with child seats and booster seats and seatbelt laws, the kids can't stick their heads out the window with the way they, that they could years and years ago. Right. Yeah. Uh, because that's just that thought is so terrifying. Even you know, if you have a dog in the car and you open the window and they stick their head out a little bit, uh, you know, that's that's your biggest fear is there's going to be a pole or something. Sure. There's and and I've I guess. Since I've seen this the first time, I only watched it one more time, and then actually Christy from Neozaz and I did a list of it was like the five movie, five thing five movies you never want to see again, and most of them were crap movies. Like I never want to see, you know, Chairman of the Board with Carrot Top again, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But I don't want to see that at all, and I no, 
No, you don't. <laughs> I don't want but, to see Carrot Top again. <laughs> my number one was this because of how damaged I was after seeing it the first time. And because when I get like that about something, I totally um, dive in headfirst to reading everything I can about it and the mythology about it and all that kind of stuff. And there are lots of people that think that that deer or whatever it was in the road was put there by the cult. That's, that's, you know, I don't know how, you know, how they knew to expect that to be able to happen, except I'm, you know, my feeling watching this with no real evidence to support it was that somehow this was all prearranged. It was. It because of the mysticism involved. Um, even beyond that, the the symbol that you see throughout the movie, it's one of the first things you see. Um, the grandmother's wearing a necklace of the symbol. Tony Collette wears the symbol. Um, you see the symbol a lot. The first time when Peter's on the way, did you only watch, did you watch this one time? Yeah, I only had a chance to watch it once so far, and. Uh, you know, you, your your comment about that it's you know a movie you never want to see again. Uh, yeah, in this instance, that's not a reflection of quality. It's a reflection of how uncomfortable it makes you feel. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure if and when I'm going to see it again. Uh, although it's I, – I don't know that I'm necessarily opposed to the idea of seeing it again, but I think in order to see it again – I would have to have somebody who I know appreciates horror movies who hasn't seen it and to say, let's sit down and watch this because I want to watch your reactions as it's going on. Right. That is a fun way to watch this movie. And one of the things that I did not notice the first time, but on the second time I did, when Peter is driving her to the party the first time and it's daylight, you see the pole, right? Do you remember that scene? I don't specifically remember taking note of the pole. They drive past the telephone pole that will later decapitate Charlie. If you look at it real close and pause it, the symbol is on the pole. Okay, so now now you're talking about actual physical evidence that it was planned out by the uh, yes. the cult or the uh, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, the, the symbol that is on the necklaces that you see a million times through the thing is on the back of that telephone pole. This was preordained. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting just from a presentation point of view. Uh, Anne is a miniature sculpturist, sculptress, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, and the movie opens up with that scene of, you know, closing into the what, what looks to be a dollhouse, but mm-hmm. I guess is much more sophisticated than a dollhouse. And then we actually have Peter and... Uh, Gabriel Byrne, like in the scene. It's so, his bedroom. Yeah, it's Peter's yeah, it's, bedroom. It's his bedroom, but it starts as his bedroom in the miniature. Yeah, it's great. And then it turns into the real bedroom. So it's interesting how kind of the, their life is being shown in this miniature that she's putting together. And I don't think they ever say exactly why she's putting this together. I mean, I know she was retained to do it. But it looks like it's a miniature of their lives. Right. She's an artist, and I guess that's what she ends up doing. She she sculpts her life because a lot of the pieces that she makes during the movie that we see are the events of the movie. 
Yeah, exactly. So it, it makes for an interesting storytelling device to do it that way, I think. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of people that think that the miniatures there's – uh, there's a lot of symbolism in this movie. And some people believe that the reason they, do, they take so much time with the miniatures is that it's supposed to be symbolic that their lives, which you find out at the end, their lives are being controlled – and almost played with by the cult. So the the symbol of Peter's bedroom and the things that are happening to them almost being like toys in a dollhouse that are being moved around is really what's happening to that family. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that's another aspect of it. That's one of the aspects that you start thinking about afterwards and is so frightening how their yeah. lives were manipulated this way. Totally. Now where where do you see it fitting in as far as uh, the scene uh, and just again if somebody hasn't actually watched it but is still listening uh, a bird crashes into a window and dies and Charlie the young girl goes and gets the bird and then decapitates it It, the bird is dead but she doesn't kill it but she decapitates it and then uses it kind of almost in a to, to put it on a you know on a on a body with like almost like she's aping what her mother's doing in a much more crude and rudimentary way. Right. But then that, Charlie gets decapitated and then that becomes such a big thing. So like, how do you see that all tying together or do you? I do. A head, head loss is a huge part of this movie. And I'll, and a lot of that goes when the, the, I mean, we're, we're, I'm not skipping towards the end, but the ends to the mean of this is a mythology sur- surrounding um, demonic possession by a, a thing called um, was it payment? Yes. And payment's a I'm not going to say it's a real thing, but but it's a real pay, myth. It's a real myth that people. It's not like they made it up for the movie. It's been around since the 1500s. Payment, and a big part of it is is decapitation. It's a way to like remove uh, removing the brain from a body. I think they believe is is your way of removing reason and thought from what has to happen. So I think that's why a lot of things lose their head at the point that we first see Charlie. She is possessed by payment already. Right. Yeah, and that's eventually, and again, you know, if somebody hasn't watched it yet, uh, eventually we learn Charlie is possessed by Payman, but their ultimate goal is to get Pe- get Payman into Peter. Right. Because so he has to, to be in a male. Yes. That's somehow being in a female. They, they even say something to the effect of like that it's offensive or something. Right, uh, which I they don't they don't really explain that, but I would bet if you read into payment in this 1500s uh, legend, uh, I, I I would bet that it's all tied into that somehow. I think so too. Payment, there's a lot you can read a lot on payment. I mean, I wouldn't waste a whole lot of time doing it, but payment is one of the eight kings of hell in right. in this mythology, and there's a dropped line where they talk about um, Annie's family. And her whole family has been messed up forever because of this 
because of her mother, the grandmother that dies at the beginning. Um, her sister died. Her brother hung himself. They were all schizophrenic. And there's a dropped line that at some point, Annie's mom tried to do this to Annie's brother. And that's why he killed himself. We eventually learned that, you know, Annie's mom, that, <laughs> that, She's not, you know, you, 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 when you're watching the beginning and you're watching the eulogy, you're just thinking, okay, I know people like this, you know, where the mother is controlling and manipulative, and, you know, maybe paranoid, whatever it might be. Uh, but then, you know, as the movie goes on, you learn, you know, no, 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 it's so much more. Uh, <laughs> that oh, yeah. she, you know, she was part of this cult and she, you know, it, it seems like she sacrificed the family to it. Yeah, that's that's the way, you know, it, it it kind of plays out. This was all orchestrated by the grandmother and the cult. There's a there's other lines where Annie has said she never wanted to have children. She doesn't have a motherly instinct, but the grandmother pretty much forced her to have them because she needed a vessel for the eighth king of hell. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the I just I'm, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm just. There is a little stream of consciousness in how I do this. Uh, <laughs> but after Charlie is decapitated, Peter just goes home and goes to bed. Yeah, I guess he's – those scenes, like, I guess he's in shock. I don't yeah, know. Oh, no, clearly he's in shock. Uh, but just like, like you, you know, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, of course your first instinct would be, oh, my God, you know, call an ambulance, even though she's decapitated, clearly, or call the police, call whatever – but you could almost see like you'd be almost in this, you know, state of denial. Yeah. And yeah. shock. Yeah. How could that happen? And it just did. Yeah. So uh, it, it almost seemed it, it's it's outrageous and yet it seems real. Right. There are times it's hard to know in this what is real and what's an illusion because it does jump sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of stuff about how at one point Annie did try to kill both of her kids. And I always I, – I never saw this anywhere, but I was wondering that maybe she tr- <laughs> tried to kill them because she was trying to stop all this from happening. It's it's hard to, to know like how much she suspected. Right, because and she's then, a mess. Yeah, and then even at the end when she's starting to get a, a, a feel for what's going on. Uh, and she presents this to her husband, and he he just says she's crazy, and he's ready to call the police, and uh, he meets a grisly end of his own. Um, like you don't know how much of it she truly has a grasp of, because the way the movie plays it, it's it slowly unfolds it. It's you know it's a it's a it's layers. It's an onion that they're just taking a layer at a time off of until yeah. you finally get to the end. Until the end, when they make the de- you know when they all start bowing before Peter as the new vessel for payment, uh, you don't really totally put together everything that's going on. And that's in that respect, it almost had a little bit of a sixth sense feeling about it where, you know, once you get the final reveal, then you start saying, okay, now I see what they were doing earlier in the movie. Right. Yeah. There, I guess you, I guess you call it a twist, but it's not a, twist in the Shyamalan sense of a twist no, no. it's it's been building to this end 
But it's not like a what? It's just a oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I would say the movie that it seems to parallel the most to me, if you're going to try and go to a classic horror movie, is Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Actually, I've heard that uh, before, especially because it's about, you know, different generations of a family. And it's about a cult and looking for a vessel for the devil. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the closest thing that you can get. And, you know, that that movie was also I don't know if you if you've ever actually seen that one. Yeah. Uh but it's it's a slow burn as well where you don't really get exactly what's going on and then just as it gets further and further into the movie you start realizing exactly what you know what it is that happened. Yeah. Uh so I I, I would say as far as comparisons that's the closest comparison I can come up with on this movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Um I'm trying to think of if there's anything else specifically that we should uh, discuss on it. The one scene that I love, and it's and it's important to the like, – there are people that probably like this movie because of the disturbing imagery. And I don't love the movie because of that. In fact, it's the kind of stuff that you and I have been talking about. It really is not, not just uncomfortable. It's one of those kind of movies where after I'm done watching it, I feel kind of like guilty for wanting to have watched it because it's so it's just so disturbing but there's a scene where when they have dinner and i just think it's one of the best acted scenes that i've seen in a movie in a long time um when annie goes off on peter after charlie's death and the thing that sets her off actually is um steven the dad being nice to Peter because she's it's almost like she's jealous of their relationship because P, uh, Stephen has cooked dinner that night. Right. And Peter says, this is really good, Dad. And he goes, thanks, buddy. You know, it was like a nice little moment between father and the son. And after that, she just goes off. Um, the acting is just crazy pants good in this movie, especially her. I mean, mainly yeah. by her. Yeah, I think I think. I, I think it's the wrong – I'm using the wrong term because I feel like she carries this movie, and she doesn't because there's a lot of stuff. The writing is top-notch. The other acting – you know, I did say Gabriel Byrne early on didn't really do it for me. But other than that, I, I don't think there was a sour performance in the bunch, which is – it feels kind of strange to say because Gabriel Byrne is the one who I would expect the most from coming into this. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think I think it has more to do with how it's written – I think he's he's he he's you know presenting it as stoic and and strong and all of that. So to me, it almost that almost feels like he's sleepwalking through it. But I think maybe that's his goal. That's what he's trying to portray. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, almost like he's supposed to. It's almost like he's us. Like he's supposed to be the voice of reason or the person that we, the person that we associate with the most because he. He's not on board with anything that's happening, but he's still going through it to support his family because right. he's a good man. And you're you're, you're always kind of pulling for him. I don't know. I guess he's supposed to be – he's supposed to represent common sense. I don't know because there isn't a lot in this movie. Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, I think the story is complex and well thought out. I think the acting performances – pretty much across the board 
uh, are very strong. Uh, and and the direction is top notch. This is I, I can't remember the director's name off the top of my head, uh, but it was his, Ari Aster. Yeah, it was his first movie. Uh, has he done anything since then? <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, we can talk about that at the end if you want. He did his follow-up movie to this. I had big expectations, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's disappointing. Well, maybe there's there's a little bit of uh, M Night Shyamalan there too, because because yeah. uh, he he set the world on fire with the Sixth Sense, and then everybody's like, okay, what's next? And uh, hasn't really gotten up to that level again yet. That's almost exactly what it is. It's called Midsummer. It's also on uh, Amazon Prime, I think. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Um, it's another one of these things where it's a long, crazy story and a lot of crazy things happen. But unlike this, where there is an ending, Midsummer is just weird shit just to be weird shit. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of ends, and I instantly dove into that too, and was like, "Well, what does the ending mean? What does any of this mean?" And he's pretty much come out and said, eh, it, "It is what you think it is," and I hate that. I'm not a big fan of it. I don't mind directors who want you to think for yourself. Right. I don't even mind sometimes when they leave certain things up to your imagination as to what happened. But I don't like when the final questions of movies are left to your imagination. Uh, and, and the one example I usually give for that is the closing scene of The Sopranos. I don't like, well, you have to decide if they lived or if they died, if that went black because he was shot. You know, I, No, you know what? Have an ending. Yeah, I I'm, agree. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. That's how Midsummer is. And he, he has pretty much, in any interview I saw about it, said, I intentionally didn't write an ending because I want you to decide that is the biggest cop out ever write an ending. You know, don't, don't, don't do that to your audience. I'm I'm going to give you the biggest cop out ever. I'm going to top your cop out (laughs) is, uh, the 2000 version of planet of the apes by Tim Burton. Yeah. Which I did not care for. So in the movie theater did not care for it. But then when it came out on DVD, I made a point of watching it with the, uh, commentary track by tim burton Uh because i wanted to hear how he made common sense out of the ending if you'll recall yeah with lincoln yes the lincoln monument uh and when it got to that point he said something to the effect and i'm paraphrasing but something to the effect of i had a reason for doing this in my mind but i'm not going to articulate it because i don't want to tie the hands of anybody who might direct a sequel oh my god to me, that's the biggest cop-out ever because Lord knows there was going to be no sequel to that movie. No, no. Well, that, that, is, that is ridiculous. And even if there was a sequel, how does his saying it in a commentary make a difference? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like, that, he, you know, it, it just, I thought that was the biggest cop-out ever. Yeah, you're right. That's, that's awful. <laughs> so, anyway, but, but uh, Ari Aster, Aster, in this particular movie, he hit it out of the park. Whatever he did he afterwards, sure did. he's still going to always have this one on his resume. I uh, agree. He did. And, and I mean, a lot of the stuff at the end is very graphic, and it's unsettling. But it's still an ending. I mean, this... The jump scare that I was talking about before did it did it, the one that I'm talking about is when she's kind of lurking at the, at some point Annie is just gone 
it's after Steve dies. Mm-hmm. She is, uh, she is also, I guess, it, it's either payment or she is like a, a handmaiden of payment and she is just gone. And now she is after her son 100%. Um, did you see, and, and the first time you're in Peter's room, did you see her? No. No, I did not. It's 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 so well done. She's in the corner and you don't even see her. Mm-hmm. And then she's crawling on the wall and then and then the jump scare is he sees one of the naked people that is in the cult and that guy that's in the door was at the funeral and not just in the congregation when Charlie goes up to her grandmother's body in the casket. There's a guy standing in the background just smiling at her. That's the guy that's naked in the door that Peter sees, and you never see Annie coming out, coming out of that shadow, and I jump every time. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I have to agree with you. And that's to me, that's not a cheap jump scare. Um, to me, I, I don't know. I, I, I do have mixed feelings. I'm not a fan of jump scares in general. Uh, but I do kind of like when they can do it intelligently. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a rare fun. thing. It, it's Usually, they, I don't believe they can. Yep, but, but I in agree. This, in this instance, and, and it's used sparingly. It's once. It's not, you know... You know, I, I think I'll go to the movie Halloween, which I think is excellent and it's put together really well. But there's several jump scares in there, and, and those tend to cheapen it in my mind. Okay. They, I, I think they, they have a little bit more purpose because they're meant to set you up so that you start, so you start becoming numb to the jump scare a little bit, and then when right. the real thing happens, you're like, oh shit. Uh, I think that's the reason for it. But still, I'm not just not, I'm just not a fan of that practice in general so I'm, I'm i prefer a, a a horror movie that's going to give me an intelligent concept and good acting and a good story and that's what this one does yeah how were you with the with the graphic stuff later i mean annie annie saws her own head off right in front of her son like mm-hmm. and it's 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 bad it was uh, like with a piano wire or something it's, that's what it looked like yeah she yeah. just saws it off and again going on the decapitation uh theme Uh, by the time that happened I was kind of numb to it a little bit I didn't really it didn't really uh, gross me out the way I think it would have if it had been earlier in the movie yeah I think I think Charlie's decapitation kind of numbed me for the rest of the movie and seeing Charlie's decapitated head with the ants all over it oh yeah um, that was horrible yeah 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 (laughs) But by the end of this, when Peter – I mean I, there's also some debate. When Peter jumps out the window, um, does he die or does he knock himself unconscious? Either way, enough to now be inhabited by Payman and Charlie really because the first thing he does when he stands up is he clucks like Charlie's yeah, been yeah, doing. Yeah, he clicks his tongue. Uh, so do you think he's dead or do you think he's – just unconscious, and that's that's enough for payment to inhabit him. Well, I, I could I could see either being the case. Uh, as somebody who wants to sleep well, 
I prefer to think of it as he's dead. And, and, <laughs> yeah. it's, and it's just that payment is now using his body as a shell, you know, a, 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 a vessel, if you will. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to he's still alive and his soul is trapped with <laughs> with this demon from hell now. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, I think I think I sleep better at night thinking of it that way. <laughs> yeah, and then he goes that that treehouse is really not a treehouse. It's a it's a temple. Yeah. And when he goes up there and sees Payman, uh, the statue of Payman, with at, at one point he's standing there and it's his sister's uh, disembodied head on the Payman statue and his his headless grandmother and mother kneeling at it. Oh, yeah. That's a disturbing image. Yeah. And at that point, he is King Payman, crowned by Ann Dowd's uh, June. June. It was a Joan, yeah. And, and and it's an ending. And I remember the first time seeing it, and at the end, I, I may have even like been a little upset. Like, what? Like, what kind of ending is that? <laughs> but as it sunk in, I realized that it, it was an ending. You don't need to know what happens after that. No, and I guess in theory they could do a sequel, but I don't see them doing one that will live up to the level of this one. Nah, so I yeah. think it's I'm 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 usually an easy mark for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I enjoy a movie, if I enjoy characters, I'm like, oh, well, give me more of it, uh, and, and I'll take my chances. And even if it's at a lesser level, I'm usually okay. Okay. Uh, in this instance, I think a sequel would only cheapen this movie, and I don't think it would be. I don't think they'd be well advised to do it because I, I don't think this has quite enough of a cult following where it would be a financial cash cow for them anyway. You're right. So why, you know, why ruin this one in effect? Yeah, I agree. And I and and this story was told well enough to me that I'm fine with never seeing these people again and. I don't know. I guess King Payman is still out there somewhere. Yeah. Well, just stay away from my head. Stay away from my house and my head. <laughs> my head. Just keep your hands off my head, okay, kid? That's all. So I think we've hit the point where we're going to rate this. Are you familiar with the Jaws scale that I've set up? I know that it's 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 is it Jaws? But you'll have to re- you'll have to re- refresh this for me. Okay, not a problem. Now uh, I I always preface it with. Uh, these aren't really my reviews of the actual Jaws movies <laughs> because we did we did an episode to, at the very, very beginning of the show where we went through Jaws 1 through 4, and Jaws 3 was actually ranked as Jaws 4, and Jaws 2 was ranked as Jaws 3. So you, you, know, you have to understand that the, that the rankings are, are purely for uh, – you know, to to give ratings for them that's not necessarily indicative of the actual movies because I don't want people to say, well, this is better than Jaws 3, so therefore it has to be a Jaws 2. Right. Uh, better than Jaws 3 is not a very high bar to set for anything. <laughs> so um, It so, didn't change the way that you uh, view SeaWorld? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it also changed the way I viewed 3D movies because I got dragged <laughs> into the movie in the movie theater to see that one. Uh, yeah, I remember going. I, I went the week that was out. All of, a bunch of my friends went to see Jaws 3, and I wanted to go, but I couldn't because I wasn't allowed to see things like that. So instead, I went to see Annie with my grandmother, which was fine because I'm, I like musicals. But 
we just so happened to get there right as all of my friends were going to see Jaws 3. <laughs> so it was like five of my friends in Jaws 3, and they were like, oh, you're going to see Jaws 3? No, I'm going to see Annie with my grandmother. <laughs> you have fun with that. The sun will come out tomorrow, bitch. <laughs> oh, that's got to be one of the worst moments. Yeah. Uh, but so so by the, for, for the purposes of this podcast – if you rank it, Jaws, you're saying it's nearly a perfect movie, an all-time classic, uh, just one of the greats of all, you know, a great, great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jaws 2 is a solid movie, well done, worthy of multiple viewings, uh, not, you know, no real big flaws to it that would enter into your, you know, or would f- prevent you from enjoying them. Uh, Jaws 3, you know, it's a movie you could watch, it's okay, it's not particularly special. Uh, and Jaws 4 is bad. <laughs> then I've since added a Jaws 5. I actually call it Jaws 19 because I go with the uh, Back to the Future. Back to the Future, nice. <laughs> Rating. But Jaws, Jaws 19 is a movie that's so bad that it's fun to watch. Like The Room. I never saw The Room. Oh, that's your next show. <laughs> get, get Matt and Christy from Neozaz, and it'll be about a seven-hour show. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh so, so th- those are the rankings on it, and usually I let the guests go first. So, have at it. Okay, I I think you probably know what I'm about to say, and I don't say this lightly. I'm a very harsh critic, and anybody that listens to Neo says I get a lot of hate mail actually because they say Dave doesn't like anything, but when I like something, I really like it, and I love horror. It's one of my favorite genres, and I have said for at least a year or two since I've seen this that this is possibly one of the greatest five horror movies ever made so I am going to say it's Jaws um, because I've never seen anything like this and it affected me viscerally and not a lot of movies can do that to, to somebody. They, like you and I have seen a lot of movies in our lives. And I feel like I know what I'm in for within the first 10 minutes of a movie. You never know what you're in for until the last two, 10 seconds of this movie. Um, I'm, I'm raining at Jaws. Okay, and I think that's fair enough. I could see giving it a Jaws rating because – uh, one of the things that I often say when, when I have ranked a movie as Jaws is it does everything it sets out to do perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't fail on any level. And I don't really see where this movie fails on any level. Uh, you know, even, even the things that, you know, the, what minor, minor nitpicks that I've come in here, most of what we've talked about has been praising it. Uh, but even the minor nitpicks I've, I've pointed to, you know, and I guess the biggest one I've had is just that I thought Gabriel Byrne's performance was a little understated. Let's put it that way. Uh, but even that I don't think really affected the enjoyment of this movie at all. And I think a lot of it was calculated. Uh, so in that respect, I could give it a Jaws. And I don't think I would really have much problem doing that. I'm going to give it a Jaws 2 just because it's such an uncomfortable watch <laughs> that I don't see myself ever, again, unless I'm doing it to show somebody else a horror movie, I don't see myself ever sitting down and watching this movie again. <laughs> uh, and for that reason, I'm going to just drop it a level. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about that I just would like to, to get to before we close it out is the usually when I talk about the score in a movie, 
one of one of the, my biggest things that I say is if the score made itself obvious to you, it failed. Right. And yet I am often turned into a hypocrite on my own show because <laughs> I think the score in this movie did make itself very obvious, much in the way that like the score of Psycho would. Uh, not that it has as effect, not that it has as memorable of a score as Psycho, but. I think it was very, very clearly used to make an uncomfortable mood very often. Yes. And I think it's it was very effective in doing so. And I was very conscious of it when it was doing it, which is usually, in my opinion, the death knell of quality for that. But <laughs> in this instance, I thought it worked really, really well. And I forgot to mention that when we were discussing the movie in general. Yeah, I agree. I hadn't really thought of this about the score until you started talking about it, but it is a lot of those long it's not even music, it's just noises that are I guess electronic. I don't know. Like like it, it almost sounds like a very slowed down version of some disturbing kind of dubstep. Yeah, I, but think, it I works. think they're just they're designed to make you squirm in your seat a little bit, just to to, to have this sense of foreboding. Yep, I agree. So I want to thank you for coming on, Dave. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Me too. Uh, thank, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. We, before we sign off, why don't you give your uh, podcasting uh, resume? <laughs> well, or I'm pimp, happy pimp to... Pimp anything you like, actually, is a better way to say it. <laughs> um, I'd like to dedicate this to the 1986 Mets. <laughs> Specifically... God rest his soul, Gary Carter, who was my favorite player growing up. Um, but besides that, um, yeah, neozaz.com is uh, something that I'm proud to be a part of. And uh, if there's any kind of pop culture thing that you might be interested in, chances are we have a show about it from anything from Star Wars to and Indiana Jones to Doctor Who, Seinfeld, um, you know, you name it, and, and it's on there. So I'm on the 80s. 80s movies. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different stuff on there. I'm on some of them. I'm not on some of them, but they're they're every bit as good, and I'm sure even better. Uh, so yeah, neosaz.com. It's a good place to be. Yeah, and, you know, don't don't stop listening to me. But if you're not listening to that, you should do it too. <laughs> uh, and you know. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Dave, for coming on. And I will see you all in two weeks.
One of the eight kings of hell. We have looked to the northwest and called you in. We've corrected your first female body and give you now this healthy male host. We reject the Trinity and pray devoutly to you, great Payman. Give us your knowledge of all secret things. Bring us honor, wealth, and good familiars. Bind all men to our will as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. Hail, Payman! <laughs> <laughs> 